good to be with you tonight and to share in your meeting, and I trust that God will bless what I have to say. I'm disappointed our sister's not singing here tonight. We're looking forward to hearing a couple of pieces from her, and I trust that God will bless us all. I want to read tonight from the Gospel of Luke, Luke's Gospel, chapter 9. Luke's Gospel, chapter 9. And reading at verse 18. Luke chapter 9 at verse 18. And it came to pass as he was alone praying, his disciples were with him, and he asked them, saying, Whom say the people that I am? They answered, they answering said, John the Baptist. But some say Elias, and others say that one of the old prophets is risen again. He said unto them, But whom say ye that I am? Peter answering said, The Christ of God. And he straightly charged them and commanded them to tell no man that thing, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things, and be rejected of the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be slain, and be raised the third day. And he said to them all, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself, and take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whosoever shall save his life shall lose it. But whosoever will lose his life for my sake, the same shall save it. For what is a man advantaged if he gain the whole world and lose himself or be cast away? For whosoever shall be ashamed of me and of my words, of him shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he shall come in his own glory and in his Father's and of the holy angels. But I tell you of a truth, there be some standing here which shall not taste death till they see the kingdom of God. Amen. And may the Lord bless to us this reading from his own inspired word. Let's have a little prayer together. Father in heaven, we stand before this book, this inspired, infallible word of God, the very mind of God to humanity. And you know, Lord, we're not capable of saying one useful word upon this truth unless the Holy Spirit enables and we pray tonight that you'll grant us the enabling of the Spirit of the living God. Grant us, Lord, that endowment of power from on high, that light and that illumination. Grant us utterance of speech that what we say will be clear and to the point. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I'm assuming that maybe here on a Sunday night, the gospel is preached. Well, I want to preach on something maybe a little different tonight but I trust that we'll have the gospel in it. And the text that I want to use is that verse 23. And he said to them all, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up the cross and follow me. You know, one of the things that Jesus gave us was the Great Commission. And the Great Commission tells us that we're to go into all the world and preach the gospel. But it also tells us that we're to make disciples of all men. But you know, not only did Jesus give us the great commission and tell us to make disciples, but he also gave us the demands of discipleship. What's demanded for a follower of Jesus Christ? And that's what I want to look at with you tonight. What is demanded from those of us who follow the Savior? You know, I think today we have a form of evangelism that makes it too easy for people to come to Christ. They're not presented with the cost and what's involved and what it's going to mean 
if they're going to follow the Lamb of God. And tonight, maybe this little message will help us to see what is involved in truly following Jesus Christ. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German Lutheran pastor. He was hung by the Nazis in 1945 for his opposition to the Nazi regime. He wrote a marvelous book called The Cost of Discipleship. And in that book, he says this, salvation without discipleship is cheap grace. Cheap grace is a deadly enemy of the church. We are fighting for costly grace. He goes on to say this, do we realize that this cheap grace has turned back upon us like a boomerang? The price we are having to pay today in the collapse of the organized church is only the inevitable consequence of making grace available at too low a cost. Now, I don't know whether you could say amen to that, but I would say amen to it. We've made salvation available at too low a cost. Ian Murray is a preacher that we don't hear very much about, but he's also a great writer. And in a book that he wrote about the life story of the late Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the book is called Messenger of Grace, he tells of how evangelicals were concerned about uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones sticking so rigidly to the Word of God. And this is what it says. The thoroughness of his appeal to Scripture made needless demands upon his hearers. Can you think of anything so terrible as that? His appeal to the authority of Scripture made needless demands upon his hearers. And you know, folks, that's a little insight into the cheap grace that's being peddled in many places today. But looking at these demands of discipleship, there are mainly three demands in this text of Scripture. And the first one is this, and it's very obvious. There's a Savior who must be followed. If any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. There's a Savior who must be followed. We live in an age when we speak about the me factor. Everything's relating to me. It's what matters to me that matters. Even amongst Christians, it's what matters to me. But it's what matters to God, friend, ought to be our principle. And the Savior must be followed. And you know and I know it's not easy following the Savior in the world that you and I live in today, in the culture that we live in. It's extremely difficult to follow Jesus. What does it mean to follow Jesus? Let me give you one or two suggestions. The first thing is this, men and women, we need to be savingly committed to Jesus Christ, to the person of Jesus Christ. Savingly committed to the person of of Jesus Christ. I wonder, has that happened to you? I wonder tonight as you sit in this beautiful sanctuary, can you say, I am definitely committed, savingly committed to the person of Jesus Christ? An old Puritan preacher called Stephen Charnock put it like this, regeneration is a universal change of the whole man. It is as large and renewing as sin was in defacing. That's what it means. Another writer, Dr. A.J. Gordon, he says this, regeneration is the communication of the divine nature to man by the operation of the Holy Spirit through the Word. And Peter writes in 2 Peter 1.4, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises 
that by these we may be partakers of the divine nature. Friend, that's what it means to be savingly committed to Jesus Christ. We're partakers of the divine nature. The very life of God is in our soul. Sadly, 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 for many professing Christians today, that doesn't seem to be one of the characteristics. Many years ago, there was a a professor at Aberdeen University called Henry Struggle. He died at 29 years of age, a brilliant young man. He wrote a book with this title, The Life of God and the Soul of Man. Friend, that's conversion. That's what it means to be born again. The life of God comes into the soul of man. And I wonder, has that happened to you? Are you living in a a life that is characteristic of this, the life of God coming into the soul? That book was very instrumental in bringing John Wesley to Christ and also George Whitfield, two of the great preachers of the past. And that's, that's what it means to follow Jesus. We must be savingly committed to the person of Jesus Christ. You know, Judas was a man that shows us how far you can go in religion and not be saved. Judas' life shows us how far we can go in the things of God and not be saved. Folks, we need to be savingly committed to the person of Jesus Christ. C.T. Studd, the great missionary, said, there are two hopeless things, salvation without Christ and salvation without holiness. You know, maybe some tonight in this very audience, and you're professing salvation, but you don't have Jesus. You don't have Christ. You're not savingly committed to the person of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm giving you a lot of quotations tonight, but they're valuable. Joseph Elaine was another preacher, another great man of God. He was a Puritan. And he's written a marvelous book, An Alarm to the Unconverted. And in that book, he says this, conversion is a deep work. It's a heart work. It goes throughout the man, throughout the mind, throughout the members, throughout the entire life. Conversion is no replacing of the old building, but it takes it all down and erects a new structure. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. But friend, to follow this Savior not only means that we're savingly committed to the person of Christ, but it means that we're totally committed to the person of Christ. You know, for a number of years after my conversion, I wasn't totally committed to the person of Christ. There were things I wanted to hold on to. There were reserves in my life. And I can remember well one night getting down before God and saying, Lord, I've had enough. And I want you to have everything. I want you to have my all. I'm putting everything I am ever hoped to be on the altar tonight, and I want you to take it. And to follow Jesus Christ, which is one of the demands of discipleship, we need to be savingly committed to his person, but we need to be totally committed to the person of Jesus Christ. I wonder if you're totally committed. I wonder, friend, have you surrendered all? One of you bow before God and say, I'm holding nothing back. I'm giving all. Please forgive all these quotations from the Puritans, but you can't read any better. 
And here's what Thomas Brooks said. To do not love Christ who loves anything, they do not love Christ who loves anything more than Christ. I wonder, do you love anything more than Jesus Christ? And William Hendrickson, the great New Testament scholar, he says, a Christ supplemented is a Christ supplanted. Friend, are you totally committed to the person of Jesus Christ? One of the great preachers of the past was Dr. Graham Scroggie. He was preaching one year at the Keswick Convention, and a young woman came to him after one of the meetings, and she said, Dr. Scroggie, I would love to be totally committed to Christ, but there's one thing in my life that I am not prepared to surrender in order that I might be committed to Jesus Christ. Dr. Scroggie took his Bible down, and he turned to the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 10 and verse 14. He read that passage, you know, where Peter was on the housetop and he saw the the sheep coming down with all forms of food on it. And he heard the voice saying, Peter, rise and eat. And Peter says, not so, Lord. And Dr. Scruggy said to that young woman, if you're going to say not so, you can't say Lord. And if you're going to say Lord, you can't say not so. Do you get it? Friend, that's what it means to be totally committed to Jesus Christ. Totally committed to the Savior. Don't we sing sometimes, and I think it was Tozer who said that we don't tell lies as Christians, but we sing lies. And we sing sometimes, all to Jesus I surrender. And you know that you haven't surrendered all. All to him I freely give, and we know we haven't given everything. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to Thee. And we know it's not fully consecrated to the Lord. You maybe have heard of a young man called William Borden. William Borden was a son of a very wealthy American family. At 25, he was a millionaire. And he never felt he needed a car. He said it was an unnecessary luxury. His parents sent him for a world tour when he finished high school. And on that travel, he saw the need, the awful need of the world as he traveled from country to country. And he made up his mind that he would serve Christ. When he was saved, he wrote in the back of his Bible, no retreats. When God called him as a full-time missionary, he wrote in his Bible, no reserves. And when he died, I think he was only 25 or 26. When he died, he took cerebral uh, meningitis and died on his way to the mission field. He wrote in the back of his Bible, no regrets. You know, folks, when you are fully the Lord's, you will have no retreats. There'll be no reserves. And thank God there will be no regrets. Yes, there's a Savior who must be followed. And to follow him, we must be savingly committed to his person, but we must also be totally committed to his person. And thirdly, friend, we need to be honorably committed to the person of Jesus Christ. Now, what do I mean by that? I simply mean this. Do you have a good testimony? Do people believe in you? Or if I were talking to some unconverted person tonight who knows you, they may say, oh, that boy... Or that woman, 
Friend, we need to be honorably committed to Jesus Christ. Sadly, 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 many Christian lives today are a scandal. A scandal. Wonder are you honorably committed to Jesus Christ? Frank Crossley was a Manchester businessman. In fact, his ancestral home is where the Belfast Bible College is now. And uh, he went to, to, to Manchester, and of course, they manufactured what was known as the Crossley engine. Two young Methodist brothers ordered an engine from Crossley's to drive a little factory that started in London. After working for a year with the small engine and obviously the cheaper engine, they were facing bankruptcy. And they didn't think it was nice as Christians to be facing bankruptcy. So one of the brothers said one day, he said, I think I'll go to Manchester and I'll talk to Frank Crossley and see if there's any way he could help us. And that young man went to Manchester. He met Frank Crossley, who was a fine Christian man. He told him his story and Frank Crossley said to him, I want you to go back to your business and get your brother to make up the books and bring them to me. Whatever you've lost, I'll make it up. And bring back the engine, the small engine that's not doing its job, and I'll give you a big engine. That young man left that office that day. He walked to the train station. It was the days when there was an old waiting room and a fire burning in it. And he was in the waiting room alone, and he put his arm up on the mantelpiece, and he was weeping like a child when a man came in through the door. The man didn't know who he was, but the young man knew who, the, who this person was that came through the door. He was Thomas Cook, the famous Methodist evangelist. And he came over to that young lad and he said to him, son, can I share your grief? Have you had a sorrow today? Has someone died? Or No, sir, he said, I met a man today who treated me like Jesus would have treated me. Friend, that's a good testimony. And I wonder tonight, friend, are you honorably committed to Jesus Christ? Have you got a good testimony? You know, for 20 centuries, the church has been telling the world to repent. And in this century, the world's telling the church to repent. Have you got a good testimony? Some years ago, Mabel and I were in South Africa. I was preaching different places. I was preaching in Cape Town, and we stayed with a lovely couple, young couple. They had a lovely home. He owned a big factory in Cape Town, employed 700 people. And one day he took us down to see this factory and showed us around it, and he was a lovely, lovely Christian man. We moved on to Durban, where I was preaching at the Durban Keswick Convention, and uh, one night after one of the meetings, this lady came up to us and she said, where did you stay when you were in Cape Town? And I said, we stayed with John, mentioning his name. And she said, I used to be John's private secretary. And he was so honest. So honest. What a testimony. Friend, this is what it means to follow Christ. Being savingly committed to the person of Christ. Being totally committed to the person of Christ and being honorably committed to the person of Christ. But it involves another thing. It involves being obediently committed to the person of Christ. Folks, are we living lives of obedience? 
Or is God being asking you to do something you're not prepared to do? If you're going to be a true follower of Christ and meet this demand of discipleship, then you must be obediently committed to the person of Jesus Christ. Eric Alexander was the minister of the Tron Church right in the middle of Glasgow, probably the biggest church in Glasgow. And here's what Eric Alexander writes. The evidence of knowing God is obeying God. The evidence of knowing God is obeying God. And Thomas Brooks that I mentioned earlier, he says, no man obeys God truly who does not obey God fully. Friend, are you living a life of obedience to the Lord? Has he been asking you for something or to do something and you're simply saying, no, Lord, I'm not going to do it. Peter Barlett was a gunner during the Prussian siege of Paris. One day he was standing at his post and his commanding officer came and he said to Barlett, look, do you see that little shanty out there in the thicket? That little shanty is infested with Prussians and I want you to fire on it. And that young gunner set his gun up, pulled the trigger and fired. And in a moment or two, that old shanty was in pieces and smithereens. And as he turned to congratulate the young gunner, he noticed he was pale and noticed that there was a tear forming in his eye. And he said, Gunner, is there something wrong? Yes, sir. That old shanty was not infested with Prussians. That old shanty was my home. And everything I had in the world was in it. But, sir, I have obeyed. I wonder tonight, friend, are we living in obedience? That's what it means to follow Christ. There's a Savior who must be followed. But the second thing I notice here in the demands of discipleship is a bit harder. There's a self that needs to be denied. If any man will come after me, anyone will follow me. Let him deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. Friend, this is a tough one, isn't it? The first one's comparatively easy. You know, over the years, I've been asked to preach at deeper life conventions. I've been asked to preach at higher life conventions. And I've been asked to preach at victorious life conventions but I've never yet been asked to preach at a lower life convention or a a denying life convention or a crucified life convention. Never, never. But that's what's involved if we're going to meet the demands of discipleship. Not only a savior who must be followed in the ways that I've mentioned, but a self that must be denied. It was D.L. Moody, the great evangelist, who said that the man who had given him most trouble was D.L. Moody. Many of us could say that. Let's consider, first of all, the difficulty of such a denial. Boy, it's difficult. Difficult. People and I sat in the church this morning and listened to a minister speaking, and he was speaking on discipleship. And that's one of the things he said. He said discipleship is tough, real tough. And friend, there's the difficulty of such a denial. It's not easy to deny self. 
especially in the culture that you and I are living in, where there's such an emphasis on ourselves, where there's such an emphasis on self. But if we're going to follow Christ and meet his demands, this is what required. We love ourselves so dearly. We promote ourselves at every opportunity. We talk up self continually. We glory in the things that we have achieved. Oh, the difficulty of such a denial. Folks, it's a difficult thing. Just a wee while ago, I read the life story of the great preacher, Dr. F.B. Meyer. And his biographer said this. He said, F.B. Meyer was a man who never seemed to have heard of F.B. Meyer. Do you get it? Seems as if he had never heard of F.B. Meyer. He was so dead to self. F.B. Meyer, it was as if F.B. Meyer didn't exist. What a testimony. And the hymn writer says, Oh, how hard it is to die and all self to crucify. Let me lose myself and find it, Lord, in thee. Your mortification is war. But oh, how we need to go against self as if we are going to war. Some of you may have heard of Oswald Chambers. He wrote a great daily reading book, My Utmost for His Highest. He was a wonderful man of God in the past. And he said this, he said, the hardest funeral I ever attended was my own. He called it a white, white funeral for some reason. But he said, the hardest funeral I ever had to attend was my own. And he wasn't speaking about his death. He was speaking about dying to self. Oh, the difficulty of dying to self. F.J. Hewell was a missionary in Mexico. And in his book, The Cross of Christ, he tells of the fruitlessness, the fruitlessness of his missionary endeavor. And here's what he writes. He said, I found my own carnality and selfishness had given grounds to monsters of hell. I myself invited them. I must get rid of self. That was as clear as the noonday sun. Folks, do you know what it is to die to self? To deny yourself? To stop pleasing yourself? Well, that's what's demanded if you're going to be a true disciple of Christ. Excuse all my illustrations, but the are they let in the light on many a sermon. Vernon Hyam was a wonderful, godly man. He ministered in Cardiff and Wales for a good while. He had been a schoolmaster, and then he went into the ministry. And he had a marvelous church in Cardiff, Heath Church in Cardiff, and it was crowded with young people Sunday by Sunday. University students came to hear him. He wrote that great hymn, Great is the Gospel of Our Glorious God. I heard him tell of a young missionary from the church. She'd been on the mission field, and she'd been there for five years, hadn't been home for five years. When she came home, he said to her one day, he said, do you see any difference in us since you were last here? And she looked at, B looked at Verenheim and she said, yes, I do. You deny yourselves nothing. You deny yourselves nothing. Folks, does that sum up your life? You deny yourselves nothing. You know, there's not only the difficulty of this, deni this denial, there's the possibility of this denial. Jesus would not have said this, folks, if it hadn't been possible. 
Jesus would never have put this burden upon his people. It wasn't possible. And there's the difficulty of it. Oh, there's the possibility of it. To die. To die. I don't know whether you've ever met a person who has died out to self. I haven't met very many, but I met a few. Oh, what lives. Beautiful lives. Think of George Mueller, that man who ran those orphanages in Bristol purely on faith. Didn't ask for a penny. He said, there was a day when I died, when I utterly died to George Mueller. Think of Bonhoeffer that I mentioned earlier. Bonhoeffer said, when God calls a man, he bids him come and die. Die to self. Evan Roberts that was used in the great 1904 Welsh Revival, he heard Seth Joshua speak, and he spoke about being bent, God bending us. And Robert said, that's what I need. And here's what he said. Maybe his grammar's not just too good. After I was bended, a wave of joy and peace filled my bosom. Yes. Difficult, but possible. In 1971, God sent a great move of the Spirit to the city of Saskatoon in Saskatchewan in Canada. He used two identical twin brothers, the Satura twins. They came to the Baptist church. The, the pastor was a man called Willie McLeod, and he had invited them for a mission. And what was to be a mission turned into a powerful revival. One of the things that happened during those days was the weeping of the people. Weeping. They had to fill the pews every night with Kleenex tissue boxes so that the people had plenty of tissues to wipe the tears away. But one night in one of those meetings, a pastor from the town, a young man, he walked the aisle. He got down on his knees at the front and someone heard him say this, I just want to die and let God take over. I want to die and let God take over. Wonder is that the language of your soul tonight? And the Bible tells us, except the corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abides alone. But if it die, it will bring forth fruit. And the hymn writer says, Lord, bend this proud and stiff-necked eye. Help me to bow my head and die, beholding him on Calvary, who bowed his head for me. I think it's Dr. Tozer who says that a man on the cross, there are three things about a man on the cross. One, he's facing in one direction. Secondly, he's not going back. And thirdly, he has no further plans of his own. Those are the three things that characterize a man on a cross. But there's not only the difficulty of such a denial and the possibility of such a denial, but folks, there's the desirability of such a denial. I've already alluded to people I've met in whose life self is being denied. And I tell you, when you meet people like that, you desire that kind of life. There's nothing so beautiful, so lovely as somebody who has died out to self and has denied self and has surrendered all to God. What a beautiful life it is, the desirability of it. Exhibitionism is gone. Trying to impress people with what we are capable of doing is gone. 
That's what happens, folks, when we die to self, when we deny self. Over the years that I was in the ministry, we gave hospitality to many, many people, to some wonderful people. I used to go home sometimes from preaching and I'd find a strange man sitting at the kitchen table with my wife. He would be a missionary. And he just heard that we had a spare bed and he came looking for a bed for the night. But I remember one man, and if I mentioned his name here tonight, some of you would mention, would know him. Friend, he was what I would call a missionary statesman. And he stayed with us in the manse for a, a few days. And he just made a tour of all the mission fields that his mission worked in. And I want to say his, the mission was one of the biggest missionary societies in the world. And he'd just been touring the whole mission field, seeing how things were. And sitting at our kitchen table, he said this to me. He said, brother, the mission fields are full of uncrucified flesh. Do you get that? The mission fields are full of uncrucified flesh. I quoted Hugo there a moment or two ago. And this is what he says in one of his books. Until Christ works out in you an inner, an inner crucifixion, which will cut you off from self-infatuation and unite you to God in a deep union of love, a thousand heavens couldn't give you peace. Oh, folks, there's a desirability about this life of self-surrender. Let me lose myself and find it, Lord, in thee. May all, may all self be slain, my friend, see only thee. Though it costs me grief and pain, I will find my life again when I lose my life and find it, Lord, in thee. I have seen the vision. For self I cannot live. Life is less than worthless till my all I give. But there's not only a savior who must be followed and a self that must be denied. The third and last thing I want you to notice here in these demands of discipleship, friend, there's a service that needs to be performed. What is that service? It's taking up your cross every day and following Jesus. And that's not easy. That's one of the demands of discipleship. Service that must be performed. If any man will come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. Richard Baxter was a, a great man. He was a minister in Kidderminster. And he said if it hadn't been for Richard Baxter, the only thing Kidderminster would have been famous for was carpets. But he made it famous for another reason. He was a godly man. Here's what he writes. The cross must be borne, carried. We are not at liberty to step over it or go around it, or avoid it. Have you taken up the cross? In Matthew chapter 10, 38, it says, And he that taketh not his cross and followeth me is not worthy of me. Have you carried the cross? Friend, I don't think the Lord Jesus is speaking about the cross that Arthur Blessed trailed after him some years ago, or some of the ideas that people have of carrying the cross. No. It's a different cross. What's the meaning of bearing this cross? What's the meaning of the cross? Friend, it's something you bear because you're identified with Jesus Christ. Some people say when they're sick, this is my cross. But that same sickness could come to a pagan 
could come to a wretch. I heard of a man who walked, he was a pastor, he went, in, went to see a lady one day or visit this home, and when he got there, she was out in the back garden, the clothesline had broken, and all her lovely white clothes were lying on the ground, and she said, this is my cross. Not a bit, friend, that could happen to the next door neighbor who's not a Christian. Friend, the cross is something that you bear because you're identified with Jesus Christ. Now, let me say this, friend. Some Christians make their own cross, and it's not worth anything. They love to be in controversy. They love to be where they're getting abused and, and ridiculed. No, no, that's not the cross. Let me quote you from Tozer. He said, many Christians accept adversity or tribulation with a sigh and call it their cross, forgetting that such things come alike to saint and sinner. Here's what Tozer says, the cross is the extra adversity that comes as a result of our, our obedience to Christ. That extra adversity that comes because of our obedience to Christ. Bishop Hanley Moore, that godly bishop of the past, he said, the daily cross is without intermission, without holiday, today, this hour, and then tomorrow, and a, life, a lifetime process. That's the meaning of the cross, folks. Something you bear, that you wouldn't have to bear if you weren't identified with Jesus Christ. I read this story years ago, and it's probably one of the most telling that I've read concerning this. Some of you may be familiar with Dr. M.R.D. Ham. He was the originator, the founder of the Radio Bible Class, and maybe some of you even use those daily bread notes that they produce. Dr. M.R.D. Ham, he was a medical doctor and then became an evangelist or a, a broadcaster on, on radio. He tells a story of a young woman who was converted at an exclusive finishing school. Her parents were wealthy, and they sent her to this very exclusive finishing school to finish her education and that she would be taught in all the manners and all the protocol that a young girl from a home like that would need if she was going to go into the world. But at that school, they had to attend church on a Sunday. And the church they attended on a Sunday was an evangelical church, and the minister preached the gospel. And as a result of sitting under that minister, this young girl was saved. Her parents didn't like it. She came home for a break and she told her parents what had happened. And her father was a ruthless man. And he gave her 24 hours to think of it. He said, if you are still willing to carry on with this religious thing, in 24 hours you leave this home, never to return. But if you're prepared to give it up, you can stay here and you'll inherit all that we have. That girl went to bed that night with a very heavy heart. And Dr. Dehan tells of how she got down at her bed to pray. And she had still some things in her little suitcase and she packed the rest in. And she said to God, God, my dad didn't die for me on the cross. My dad didn't lay down his life for me. He didn't shed his blood for me. And if it means leaving home, I'm prepared to do it. Next morning, she came down, downstairs, and there was the beautiful plush drawing room and a beautiful grand piano. And she went over to the piano and she began to play. And she played and sang 
And the hymn that she played and sang was that lovely old hymn, Jesus, I, my cross have taken, all to leave and follow thee, destitute, despised, forsaken, thou from thence my all shall be. Perish every fond ambition, all I've sought and hoped and known, yet how rich is my condition, God and heaven are still my own. Let the world despise and leave me, they have left the Savior too, human hearts and looks deceive me, thou art not like them untrue. And whilst thou shalt smile upon me, God of wisdom, love and might, foes may hate me, friends disown me, show thy face and all is bright. Man may trouble and distress me, twill but drive me to thy breast. Life with trials hard may press me, heaven will bring me sweeter rest. Oh, this oath is not in grief to harm me, Oh, twere not in joy to charm me, were it not, were that joy unmixed with thee. And then the chorus went like this. I will follow thee, my Savior, thou hast shed thy blood for me, and, thou all, and though all men should forsake me, by thy grace I'll follow thee. She heard a movement in the room and was her father. And the tears were running down his cheeks. And he came to her and he said, Darling, if Jesus means all that to you, that you're willing to leave this home and never return, please sit down and tell me about him. Yes, friend, the cross needs to be carried. And it's a difficult thing to carry that cross, but that's the meaning of the cross. What about the marks of the cross? Paul spoke in Galatians 6 and 7, From henceforth let no man trouble me, for I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus Christ. The old revised version years ago, you hardly ever see it now, it rendered it like this, branded on my body the marks of Jesus. The marks of cross-bearing. I wonder, have you any wounds tonight? I'm not particularly thinking of physical wounds, but I wonder, have you any wounds tonight because you've carried the cross? I remember some years ago being in Israel, and one day the bus that we were traveling in stopped, and there was a little boy just outside, and he was selling little crosses he'd made out of olive wood, and he was shouting, cheap crosses, cheap crosses for sale, cheap crosses for sale. And I thought, that's what many of us are settling for tonight, folks. Cheap crosses. It's costing us nothing. Costing us nothing. Oh, folks, this is the meaning of cross. But these are the marks of cross-bearing. Paul says, I bear in my body the marks. Count Zinzendorf was the founder of the Moravian movement, And when he was ordaining the Moravian missionaries, he used to say, do you know your wounds? There's a preacher in the United States, and he's also a university lecturer. I heard him tell this story. One time he brought an old veteran missionary into the college where he teaches to speak to the undergraduates. And he told of how that old man who had given most of his life for service in Vietnam, 
spoke to those students. And when he had finished speaking, he heard a student say to another student, he didn't have much to say. But someone else in the audience turned and said this, when a man's nailed to a cross, he doesn't have to say anything. When a man's kneeled to a cross, he doesn't have to say anything. Friend, a crucified life is a powerful life. The meaning of cross-bearing, the marks of cross-bearing, and I'm almost finished. You'll be glad to know. And there's the, the merits of cross-bearing. Is it worth bearing the cross? Excuse me leaving over here, but I'm just trying to reduce the time a little bit. What about the merits of cross-bearing? Is it, is it worth it? Is there any benefit in bearing the cross? What's the point of it all? Way back years ago, two ladies were put to death by drowning in the Solway Firth. I have a relative who farms just there, pretty close to where the Solway Firth was, and I was driving down into England, and I was going to stay overnight with them in the farm. And before I went to the farm, I went into Wigton. And I wandered about the old churchyard there until I found the grave of these two women. It's an old flat marble slab lying flat on the ground. One of them was 70 years of age. She was called Margaret McLaughlin. The other one was a girl of 18 years of age. She was called Margaret Wilson. They were tied to the stake in the Solway Firth, refusing to deny their Lord, refusing to recant their faith. And when the tide was coming in, the dragoons went to the young girl who was tied a little further back than the old woman. She was tied further out, and the tide was coming around her. And they said to young Margaret Wilson, what do you see out there? She said, I see Christ wrestling out there. And then they came to her, and she wouldn't recant. She began to sing in the medical version the words of the 24th Psalm. And both of them, in a very short period of time, were in eternity. I wonder if I could part heaven tonight and look into heaven and see Margaret McLaughlin and Margaret Wilson wearing martyrs' crowns. And I said to them, was it worth it all? Was there any merit in carrying the cross to that length? Do you think, do you think they would say, I wish we'd never done it? No, no, no. They would say it was worth it all. Worth it all. Worth it all. John and Betty Stam were missionaries in China. When the Red Guards took over, the communists were sweeping in. They had one little girl called Helen. She was only a baby. They took the child from her, and they took John and Betty Stam out into the hills behind the mission station and beheaded them. I wonder if we could speak to them tonight yonder in the glory land and say, was it worth it? What would they say? Oh, it was worth it all. It was worth it all. On February the 6th of January 1956, Jim Elliott, a young student from Wheaton College, got his heart's desire. He shook the hand of a Naka Indian dark in the, deep in the jungles of Ecuador. 
That was on Friday the 6th of January, 1956. On Sunday the 8th of January, two days later, he was dead. And the others who went with them, all of them were martyred for the sake of the gospel. Remember, he was the man who said, he's no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. If we could speak to Jim Elliot tonight, say, Jim, was it worth it all? I think he would say it was worth it all. And one day when I get home to heaven, if I ever get the chance of standing beside any of those folks wearing their martyr's crowns, I know very much to boast or brag about. It has cost me so little to follow Jesus. These are the demands of discipleship, folks. Taking up the cross for Jesus, glad for him to suffer shame, all my gain I count but losses for the glory of that name. And then there's a verse that goes like this, tell me not of heavy crosses, nor of burdens hard to bear, for I found this great salvation makes each burden light appear. And I love to follow Jesus, gladly counting all but dross, worldly honors all forsaken for the glory of that cross. The three demands of discipleship that Jesus lays down here. There's a savior who must be followed. There's a self that must be denied. And there's a service that must be performed every day taking up the cross to follow Jesus.